welcome to Over in Smith, an H.P. Lovecraft podcast where we read the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. And usually we have an audiobook, unless it's too racist or boring. Uh, today we're going to be reading the next part of At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, and with me is uh, somebody who, uh, uh, you know, found a, uh Antarctic camp totally in shambles with some mysterious things happening. Art! Hi. You know, maybe we shouldn't tell people about the realistically buried uh, plant animals that we found close to all the dead people in this camp. Yeah. I vote that we take them and we set them up like they're having a nice little tea party and then we can take pictures and send them back to the public it's like if we don't tell anything one about it we'll we'll get a delay that the left fall the left cannot say it we've talked about it so many times the left the left the past the, the, the thing the russian day place oh the, dietlofs dietlofs there it is dietlofs pass we'll have another delay the left dietlofs pass yeah nice yeah let's yeah. do it <laughs> Yeah, except this time it was irradiated uh, plant animals that heard was, infrared sounds. <laughs> it was irradiated penguins. <laughs> Last we left off, uh, the narrator and a team lost contact with uh, Lake, who was the one that was reporting back to them about the um, monsters, basically. I guess we don't know if they were monsters. They could have been nice people. <laughs> um so they lost contact they ended up trying to contact them for like uh 12 hours straight couldn't get a hold of them and uh ended up making a flight to the camp and found it completely like windswept ruined the uh machinery like the drill they were using is um all messed up the dogs are uh dead there's um some of the bodies of the vegetable animal things are the elder things were ritualistically buried and they've also decided not to report um basically censor themselves a bit not to report that stuff to the outside people uh the narrator also mentioned him and a younger member of the party went on a hiking expedition together just the two of them and apparently they saw some shit uh yeah i would like to say this is very similar to that one uh expedition where that where those stuffy british nationalists decided to lie about penguins because they're doing depraved things it's <laughs> exactly and they're just like no we yeah, can't. penguins are into some freaky shit, apparently. Yeah. Which, you know what, they're penguins, whatever. You know, I I'm gonna shame them. I feel like it's my <laughs> right I'm to gonna kink shame, shame these penguins. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna kink shame them. Uh, but yeah, so, um, and the narrator also mentioned that somebody is thinking of doing an expedition to the, uh, same place that they were just at, and it's like, no, you don't wanna. No. Um, so, I guess he's going to espouse on some of the stuff that went down. 
Or he's not going to. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's boy. an option. That it is could also. Be, it could be could... A, several dozen other uh, other uh, pages of him not doing that. Uh, yeah, he could also do the um, the. Uh, I guess they'll just have to fuck around and find out. Option. <laughs> yeah, which which involves him doing nothing. Absolutely and, nothing. He's letting them just, fuck around and find out. It's it's uh, it's going to turn into a slice of life book. Oh God! It's the beach episode of H.P. Lovecraft novels. <laughs> yeah, we finally get to we finally get to uh, get the fan service we've been craving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've all that we've all been waiting for. All right, shall we get this show on the road? Talk about some. Um, Spooky things? Yeah. Okay. At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. It is only with vast hesitancy and repugnance that I let my mind go back to Lake's camp and what we really found there, and to that other thing beyond the frightful mountain wall. I am constantly tempted to shirk the details and to let hints stand for actual facts and ineluctable deductions. I hope I have said enough already to let me glide briefly over the rest. The rest, that is, of the horror at the camp. I have told of the wind-ravaged terrain, the damaged shelters, the disarranged machinery, the varied uneasiness of our dogs, the missing sledges and other items, the deaths of men and dogs, the absence of Gedney, and the six insanely buried biological specimens strangely sound in texture for all their structural injuries from a world 40 million years dead i do not recall whether i mentioned that upon checking up the canine bodies we found one dog missing we did not think much about it till later indeed only danforth and i have thought of it at all the principal things i have been keeping back relate to the bodies and the certain subtle points which may or may not lend a hideous and incredible wave, which may or may not lend a hideous and incredible kind of rationale to the apparent chaos. It turns out it's that one dog that was missing. <laughs> everything, everything that was done could only be done with no opposable thumbs. <laughs> it's a dog serial killer. <laughs> It waited for its perfect moment to strike. <laughs> it did it during the windstorm. <laughs> just, just like a, a very quick close-ups of a knife and a dog's <laughs> stabbing somebody. <laughs> oh like, my why god! Why are you stabbing me? You could just bite me with your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> You can literally, you are built to tear out throats. Why are you stabbing me? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that idea that it was, it, it is, oh my God. We've come to the Silent Hill alternate ending where the dog was behind it the whole time. We have, okay. <laughs> Which, by the way, is my personal favorite ending. <laughs> It was you. It was you all along. Bark. <laughs> I hope that's what they saw when they went 
past the mountains, that little control room, like in Silent Hill, a little Shiba Inu with a little yeah. headset on <laughs> and some like levers and stuff. <laughs> the time I tried to keep the men's mind off those points, for it was so much simpler, so much more normal to lay everything to an outbreak of madness on the part of some of Lake's party. From the look of things, that demon mountain wind must have been enough to drive any man mad in the midst of the center of all earthly mystery and desolation. So I think we're on track with our Dyatlov Pass theory, except maybe it wasn't irradiated penguins. Maybe it was just a bunch of Europeans going crazy. Mm, I don't know. The whites <laughs> seem very rational. <laughs> so rational. Always. Constantly. Like, if I know one thing, it's white people, they never go mad. They 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 got just some good heads on their shoulders. Yep. The crowning abnormality, of course, was the condition of the bodies. Men and dogs alike. They had all been in some terrible kind of conflict, and were torn and mangled and fiendish in altogether inexplicable ways. Deaths so far as we could judge had in each case come from strangulation or laceration. The dogs had evidently started the trouble for the state of their ill-built corral bore witness to its forcible breakage from within. It had been set some distance from the camp because of the hatred of the animals for those hellish, archaean organisms. But the precaution seemed to have been taken in vain. When left alone, in that monstrous wind behind flimsy walls of inefficient height, they must have stampeded, whether from the wind itself or from some subtle increasing odor emitted by the nightmare specimens, one could not say. Those specimens, of course, had been covered with a tent cloth, yet the low Arctic sun had beat steadily upon that cloth, and Lake had mentioned that solar heat tended to make the strangely sound tough tissues of the things relax and expand. Perhaps the wind had whipped the cloth from over them, and jostled them in such a way that their more pungent olfactory qualities became manifest despite their unbelievable antiquity. Or a dog learned how to uh, open up the corral. (laughs) And when I say that, I mean not in like a good boy way, like, oh, you're such a smart boy. I mean, oh, you're such a conniving boy who wants to kill everyone. <laughs> Homicidal maniac dog. Yeah, obviously. He's like, we gotta get rid of these stinky specimens. Too stinky. Yeah. I mean, some of them were buried. You know exactly. what dogs like to do? Bury stuff. <laughs> yeah, they often they often also have ritualistic uh ritualistic things around what they bury as well. Obviously. Oh, t- Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever had happened, it was hideous and revolting enough. Perhaps I had better put squeamishness aside and tell the worst at last. Though, with a categorical statement of opinion, based on the first-hand observations and most rigid deductiveness of both Danforth and myself, that the then-missing Gedney was in no way responsible for the loathsome horrors we found. I have said that the bodies were frightfully mangled, Now I must add that some were incised and subtracted from the most curious, cold-blooded, and inhuman fashion. It was the same with the dogs and men. All the healthier, fattier bodies 
quadrupedal or bipedal had had their most solid masses of tissue cut and removed as by careful butcher, and around them was a strange sprinkling of salt taken from the ravaged provision chests on the plains, which conjured up the most horrible associations. The thing had occurred in one of the crude aeroplane shelters from which the plane had been dragged out, and subsequent winds had effaced all tracks which could have supplied any plausible theory. Scattered bits of clothing, roughly slashed from the human incision subjects, hinted no clues. It is useless to bring up the half-impression of certain faint snow prints in one shielded corner of the ruined enclosure because that impression did not concern human prints at all, but was clearly a mix-up of the talk of fossil prints and poor lake that had been given throughout the preceding weeks. One had to be careful of one's imagination in lee of those overshadowing mountains of madness. They said the title again. <sighs> so, what I'm hearing is that it wasn't human prints. That means it could be dog prints. Yeah. Okay. Little, little little paw prints. Well, a little, uh, some little toe beans. Yeah, and everyone knows dogs like salt. Yeah, love it. They're like horses, right? But small. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're like suck. the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't hate them. As I've indicated, Gedney and one dog turned out to be missing in the end. When we came on that terrible shelter, we had missed two dogs and two men, but the fairly unharmed dissecting tent, which we entered after investigating the monstrous graves, had something to reveal. It was not as Lake had left it, for the covered parts of the primal monstrosity had been removed from the improvised table. Indeed, we had already realized that one of the six imperfect and insanely buried things we had found, the one with the trace of peculiarly hateful odor, must represent the collected section of the entity which Lake had tried to analyze. On and around that laboratory table were strewn other things, and it did not take long for us to guess that those things were carefully, though oddly and inexpertly, dissected parts of one man and one dog. I shall spare the feelings of survivors by omitting mention of the man's identity. Lake's anatomical instruments were missing, but there were evidence of their careful cleansing. The gasoline stove was also gone, though around it we found curious litter of matches. We buried the human parts beside the other ten men, and the canine parts with the other thirty-five dogs. Concerning the bizarre smudges on the laboratory table and on the jumble of roughly handled illustrated books scattered near it, we were in too much bewildered to speculate. Dang. Uh, That's not good. No. Makes it sound like a little, uh, like one of the little strips of flesh. Uh, I just picked up a knife. Sorry, going down. <laughs> just a little tentacle. Oh my god, it's like, um forever ago on tiktok there was that guy that made the tentacle with the knife and then he was like i can't turn it off because <laughs> it's just like originally it was just a tentacle and it kind of just like waved and wiggled around like wildly but then he put a knife in it and so then it's a knife being just like waved around erratically <laughs> well you know sometimes people don't you know they think of the you know we can do this but they don't ask you know why? 
we uh, it's yeah like in jurassic park we kept all we did was ask if we could we never asked if we should <laughs> yep and that, and that got found out real quick oh, yeah you found it real quick <laughs> just getting into a knife fight with a tentacle i would love to see that i mean some people would probably pay for that experience I mean, people pay to go on Mount Everest. I I don't doubt somebody would pay to fight a tentacle with a knife. <laughs> I, bet that, I bet that tentacle waving a, a knife around wildly could probably take on the U.S. Army. Oh, 100%. It's like that video of uh, Solid Snake fighting the crab with a knife. <laughs> he just gets, like, straight up murdered. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. This formed the worst of the camp horror, but other things were equally perplexing. The disappearance of Gedney, the one dog, the eight uninjured biological specimens, the three sledges, and certain instruments, illustrated technical and scientific books, writing materials, electric torches and batteries, food and fuel, heating apparatus, spare tents, fur suits, and the like, was utterly beyond sane conjecture. As were likewise the spatter fringe ink blots on certain pieces of paper, and the evidence of curious alien fumbling and experimentation around the planes and all other mechanical devices, both at the camp and at the boring. The dog seemed to abhor this oddly disordered machinery. Then, too, was the upsetting of the larder, the disappearance of certain staples, and the jarringly comical heap of tin cans pried open in the most unlikely ways and at most unlikely places. The profusion of scattered matches, intact, broken, or spent, formed another minor enigma, as did the two or three tent cloths and fursuits which were found lying about and peculiar and unorthodox slashings, conceivably due to clumsy efforts or unimaginable adaptations. The maltreatment of the human and canine bodies and the crazy burial of the damaged archaean specimens, disintegrative madness, okay, were all of a piece of this apparent disintegrative madness. In view of such an eventuality, as the present one, we carefully photographed all the main evidences of insane disorder at the camp and shall use the prints to buttress our pleas against the departure of the supposed Starkweather Moor expedition. Are you telling me that the older things were trying to put on the fursuits? I mean, they're probably cold. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like it's not a bad... I, I, I don't... I don't think we should blame them for anything. I, for, I get it. They tried. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, they were coals. I mean, if you're cold, they're cold, obviously. So, <laughs> no. I also like that they ate all the canned food. Yeah. And then just I'm, threw the cans wherever. <laughs> I mean, they aren't the ones who have to... They aren't the ones who have to pick it up. Yeah, they have the help, you know, for that. And that's the humans <laughs> they ate. They're like, whatever, we're leaving. Fuck these people. Our first act after finding the bodies in the shelter was to photograph the open row of insane graves with the five-pointed snow mounds. We could not help noticing the resemblance of these monstrous mounds with their clusters of group dots to poor Lake's description of the strange greenish soapstones. And when we came to some of the soapstones themselves in the general mineral pile, we found the likeness very close indeed. The whole general formation 
it must be made clear, seemed abominably suggestive of the starfish head of the Archean entities, and we agreed that the suggestion must have worked potently upon the sensitized minds of Lake's overwrought party. Our first sight of the actual buried entities formed a horrible moment and sent the imaginations of Pobodi and myself back to some of the shocking primal myths we had read and heard. We all agreed that the mere sight and continued presence of the things must have cooperated with the oppressive polar solitude and demon mountain wind in driving Lake's party mad. For madness, censuring and Gedney as the only possible surviving agent was the explanation spontaneously adopted by everyone, so far as spoken utterance as concern, though I will not be so naive as to deny that each of us may have harbored wild guesses which sanity forbade him to formulate completely. Sherman, Pobody, and McTeague made an exhaustive airplane cruise over all the surrounding territory in the afternoon sweeping the horizon with field glasses in quest of Gedney and of the various missing things, but nothing came to light. The party reported that the Titan barrier range extended endlessly to the right, without any diminution in height or essential structure. On some of the peaks, though, the regular cube and rampart formations were bolder and plainer having doubly fantastic similitudes to warch-painted Asian hill ruins. The distribution of cryptical cave mouths to the black-snowed renewed summits seemed roughly even as far as the range could have traced. Cryptical cave mouth is what they call your mom. I explored your mom's cryptical cave mouth last night. Oh! And her black snow denuded oh. summits. Oh! Oh! <laughs> In spite of the prevailing horrors, we were left with, with enough scientific zeal and adventurousness to wonder about the unknown realm beyond those mysterious mountains. As our guarded messages stated, we rested at midnight after our day of terror and bafflement but not without a tentative plan for one or more of the range-crossing altitude flights at a lightened plane with aerial camera and geologist outfit. Beginning the following morning, it was decided that Danforth and I try first, and we awaked at 7 a.m., intending an early trip. Though heavy winds mentioned our brief bullets into the outside world delayed our start to nearly 9 o'clock. We have already repeated the non-committal story we told the men at camp and relayed outside. After our return 16 hours later, it is now my terrible duty to amplify this account by filling in the merciful blanks with hints of what we really saw in the hidden transmontane world. Hints of the revelations which have finally driven Danforth to a nervous collapse. I wish he would add a really frank word about the thing which he thinks he alone saw, even though it was probably a nervous delusion, in which was perhaps the last straw that put him where he is, but he is firm against that. All I can do is repeat his later disjointed whispers about what set him shrieking to the plane, soared back through the wind-tortured mountain pass, after that real intangible shock which I had shared. This will form my last word. 
If the plain signs of surviving elder horrors and what I disclose be not enough to keep others from meddling in the inner Antarctic, or at least from prying too deeply beneath the surface of that ultimate waste of forbidden secrets and an unhuman, aeon-cursed desolation, the responsibility for unnameable and perhaps immeasurable evils will not be mine. Uh, uh, I'm just gonna say, Dryer doesn't know anything about humans. Must be a must be an alien. <laughs> the more he says, the more people are gonna go. Even if there's a sign that says you will die if you go past this, be like, eh, I don't know. I think I'm gonna go anyway. Yeah, what does Danforth know about humans? He's a geologist. I know. He, he knows he about knows, rocks. Yeah, like he. He obviously doesn't know what humans would do in this situation when you describe this. Obviously not. I if I like showed up somewhere uh, to an entire camp that was dead with some strange creatures that were ritualistically buried, I'd be like, "This was fun, guys. Time to go," and then I'd yeah, leave. Just, like, I wouldn't go to the mountains. <laughs> no. Also, don't maybe don't, don't describe what happened to anyone out there besides. It was just a regular thing, you know? Just, like, honestly, if he had just said it was boring, like, there's, like, he's like, yeah, um, it was plateau, it was flat, nothing exciting. It was typical of, like, every other plateau that uh, formed around that time period. They wouldn't show up. Just say it was boring. Man, it's just, someone needs to, this is why STEM people need... To take the humanities. One hundred percent. Dryer, please. It's like I'm not even an explorer, and I still kind of want to go because I'm just like, wow, that sounds weird and fucked up. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. I want to see the fucked up mountains. They sound fucked up. My favorite kind of mountain. <laughs> I've never seen a fucked up mountain before. I want to see one now. And you told me exactly where it is. You've given me so many coordinates. <laughs> exact coordinates at the exact height of where this fucked upness is. All that. <laughs> Danforth and I studying the notes made by Popodi in his afternoon flight and checking up with a sextant had calculated the lowest available pass in the range lay somewhat to the right of us. Within sight of camp, an about 23,000 or 24,000 feet above sea level. For this point, then, we first headed in the lightened plain. We embarked on our flight of discovery. The camp itself on foothills, which sprang from high continental plateau, was some 12,000 feet in altitude. Hence, the actual height increase necessary was not so vast as it might seem. Nevertheless, we were acutely conscious of the rarefied air an intense cold as we rose, for on account of visibility conditions, we had to leave the cabin windows open. We were dressed, of course, in our heaviest furs. As we drew near the forbidding peaks, dark and sinister above the line of crevasse-ridden snow and interstitial glaciers, we noticed more and more curiously regular formations cling to the slopes and thought again of the strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Warwick. The ancient wind-weathered rock strata fully verified all of Lake's bulletins and proved that these hoary pinnacles have been towering up in exactly the same way since surprisingly early time in Earth's history. 
perhaps over 50 million years. How much higher they had once been, it was futile to guess, but everything about the strange region pointed to obscure atmospheric influences unfavorable to change, and calculated to retard the usual climatic processes of rock disintegration. All right, so they're basically saying that, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Wind um, erosion is not a thing here, is essentially what he just said, which does not sound real, by the way. Yeah, wind, it happens to be one of the most powerful erosion. That sounds fake, but okay. (laughs) Whatever you say, Dryer, you're the rock expert. But it was the mountainside tangle of regular cubes, ramparts, and cave mouths which fascinated and disturbed us most. I studied them with a field glass and took aerial photographs whilst Danforth drove, and at times relieved him at the controls, though my aviation knowledge was purely an amateur's, in order to let him use the binoculars. We could easily see... Much of the material of the things was the lightish archaean quartzite, unlike any formation visible over broad areas of the general surface, and that their regularity was extreme and uncanny to an extent which poor Lake had scarcely hinted. As he had said, the edges were crumbled and rounded from untold aeons of savage weathering, but the preternatural solidity and tough material had saved them from obliteration. Many parts, especially those closest to the slopes, seemed identical in substance with the surrounding rock surface. The whole arrangement looked like the ruins of Machu Picchu in the Andes, or the primal foundation walls of Kish as dug up by the Oxford Field Museum expedition in 1929, and both Danforth and I obtained that occasional impression of separate cyclopean blocks, which Lake had attributed to his flight companion Carol. How to account for such things in this place was frankly beyond me, and I felt queerly humbled as a geologist. Igneous formations often have strange regularities, like the famous Giant's Causeway in Ireland, but the stupendous range, like Lake's original suspicion of smoking cones, was above all else non-volcanic in evident structure. The curious cave mouse, near which the odd formations seemed most abundant, presented another, albeit a lesser, puzzle because of their regularity of outline. They were, as Lakes Bolton had said, often approximately square in their semicircular, as if the natural orifices had been shaped to greater symmetry by some magic hand. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh. (laughs) magic hand shaping some orifices you'd say (laughs) it is pride month so you know oh my god it's the it's the fan service we were just talking about we finally this is (laughs) this is all we're getting (laughs) just a, a magic hand and some orifices Thanks, uh, love. Thank you, Lovecraft. Happy Pride Month, everybody. <laughs> I saw orifices and magic hand, and I was like, oh, buddy. <laughs> this is it. This is where we go. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Shaped to greater symmetry, too. Well, I mean, how else? How else are you <laughs> supposed to do it? Uh, yeah. 
Their numerous and wide distribution were remarkable and suggested that the whole region was honeycombed with tunnels dissolved out of limestone strata. Such glimpses as we secured did not extend far within the caverns, but we saw that they were apparently clear of stalactites and stalagmites. Outside those parts of the mountain slopes, adjoining the apertures seemingly invariably smooth and regular, and Danforth thought that the slight cracks and pittings of the weathering tending towards unusual patterns. Filled as he was with the horrors and the strangeness discovered at the camp, he hinted that the pittings vaguely resembled those baffling groups of dots, sprinkled all over the primeval greenish soapstones, so hideously duplicated in the madly conceived snow mounds above those six varied monstrosities. We had risen gradually in flying over the higher foothills and along toward the relatively low pass we had selected. As we advanced, we occasionally looked down at the snow and ice of the land route, wondering whether we could have attempted the trip with the simpler equipment of earlier days. Somewhat to our surprise, we saw the terrain was far from difficult as things go and that despite the crevices and other bad spots, it would have been likely to deter the sledges of a Scott or a Stackleton or an Amundsen. Some of the glaciers appear to lead up to wind-bared passes in unusual continuity, and upon reaching our chosen pass, we found that its case were no exception. Our sensations of tense expectancy as we prepare to round the crest and peer out over the untrodden world can hardly be described on paper. Even though we had no cause to think the regions beyond the strange essentially different from those already seen and traversed, the touch of evil mystery in these barrier mountains and the beckoning sea of opalescent sky glimpsed betwixt their summits was a highly subtle and attenated matter, not to be explained in literal words. Rather, it was an affair of vague psychological symbolism, an aesthetic association, a thing mixed up in exotic poetry and paintings, and with archaic myths lurking in shunned and forbidden volumes. Even the wind's burden held a peculiar strain of conscious malignity. You know that you know that feeling that uh when like someone's like looking at you but you don't know yet? Like it felt kinda like it looked like that. I don't know how <laughs> else to say. Like, God Oh, no. Like, like, you know that feeling whenever, like, you go to reach for a box and you're just like, what if this is empty and you're right? Like, it's a box of food, just a box of snacks. And, like, you know, all they had to do was throw it away, but they did it. (laughs) And, like, you you don't know who did it. It's like when I reach for my Scooby snacks and it's already (laughs) gone. It's... He's being so vague. <laughs> you know that what? feeling like right after you do something you know you weren't supposed to and you're wondering, am I going to have consequences for this? <laughs> <laughs> you know the feeling <laughs> after you like you have a long uh um What's the word I'm looking for? A long trip home, and you like you've had to pee the whole time. You finally get home. You finally get to pee. You know that feeling. That's what we felt coming over the mountains of madness. 
You know yeah. the feeling when you get a new bed for your cat and they actually like it and they make biscuits on it? Finally? Yeah, it was like that. You know the feeling when you like sneeze really hard and you suddenly uh, remember that people have sneezed so hard that their eyeballs come out? Yeah. I, just, I, I do legit think about that sometimes, by the way. Every time I step in every time I step in my shower, I'm just like, so many people have died just by stepping in their shower. <laughs> Actually, uh more people die by falling off of furniture than are killed by sharks. Like 80 times more people die from falling off of furniture than than are killed by sharks in the ocean. Yeah. By the way, it's like ten people a year by sharks. Uh, it's like eight hundred something people die from falling off their furniture. Yeah. <laughs> Some fun facts for y'all today. <laughs> yeah, it's like, can you be even vaguer about what you're feeling? He is a rock man. He he does not understand feelings. He does not need to. He only understands rocks. <laughs> Which is again why people in STEM need to take humanities. <laughs> I only understand what rock feels. Rather, it was an affair of vague psychological symbolism and aesthetic association, a thing mixed up with exotic poetry and paintings, and with archaic myths lurking in shunned and forbidden volumes. Even the wind's burden held a peculiar strain of conscious malignity. And for a second, it seemed that the composite sound included a bizarre musical whistling or piping over a wide range as the blast swept in and out of the omnipresent and resonant cave mouths. There was a cloudy note of reminiscent repulsion in this sound, as complex and unplaceable as any of the other dark impressions. You just start hearing <laughs> uh, very quietly in the distance, echoing through the mountains, Abba's Dancing Queen. You are the dancing queen. Young and sweet, only seventeen. Just like that. The slow down reverb version of ABBA's Dancing Queen. Some we would were- say the decor version. <laughs> the decor. <laughs> I, can't, I still can't believe that Daniel made fucking decor. <laughs> I still have the Dancing Queen um, remix that he made. <laughs> It's so good. We were now, after a slow ascent at the height of 23,570 feet, according to the aneroid, and had left the region of clinging snow definitely below us. Up here were only dark, bare rock slopes and the start of rough rib glaciers. But with those provocative cubes, ramparts, and echoing cave mouths, to add a portent of the unnatural, the fantastic, and the dreamlike. Looking along the line of high peaks, I thought I could see the one mentioned by Poor Lake, with a rampart exactly on top. It seemed to be half lost in a queer Antarctic haze. Such a haze, perhaps, as had been responsible for Lake's early notion of volcanism. The pass loomed directly before us, smooth and windswept between its jagged and malignly frowning pylons. Beyond it was a sky fretted with swirling vapors, lighted by the low polar sun. The sky of that mysterious farther realm, upon which we felt no human eye had ever gazed. A few more feet of altitude, and we would behold that realm. Danforth and I, 
unable to speak except in shouts amidst a howling, piping wind that raced through the pass and added to the noise of the unmuffled engines, exchanged eloquent glances, and then, having gained those last few feet, we did indeed stare across the momentous divide over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien earth. And that is the end of chapter four. That one felt very transitional. Yes, definitely. Very transitional. It did have some further description of what like the camp looked like. Uh, but other than that, yeah, definitely felt transitional. I also like the idea of somebody getting into a fight with a tentacle with a knife. Yeah. And that's how, he, that's how they died. <laughs> that's how all of them died. Just that's like, how they all died. They got into a knife fight with just one tentacle. Lake, Lake was just like, hey, look, I gave this tentacle a knife. And, and then, then it, it just was- stabs him in the neck. <laughs> What's it gonna do? Stab me? (laughs) (laughs) They're just like, please, Mr. Tentacle, put down the knife. (laughs) (laughs) It just stabs on (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the uh, elder things are just sneaking out the back of the tent. (laughs) They're just leaving. They're like, listen. This is not our monkey, not our circus. Yeah. <laughs> Just a tentacle stabbing. How how many? It was like 12 people there. <laughs> it just oh, kept... Like 11. One of them did leave. Just kept what waving a- the arm around, being like, oh, we can get it. We can get the timing down. Oh. Nope, they get it wrong each time. <laughs> it's random. There is no timing. <laughs> <laughs> Gedney's like there's it says like that and then he's like fuck this I'm out of here gets on a sledge with a dog <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> but yeah um yeah definitely felt like a transitional chapter a little a little fun things here and there yeah um but other than that it sounds like the next part is gonna be juicy though Yes, it does feel like the next part's going to be pretty juicy. Juicy. We're going to see some some spooky things past the mountains of madness. Yes. Ugh. All right. You got anything else to say about this chapter? Not really. Yeah, me neither. Oh, God. I have to find her ending thing. I don't know why I just don't get it ready. Oh, wait. I know why, because I have ADHD and I can't plan ahead. All right, folks, this has been At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, (laughs) This has been over Innsmouth reading At the Mountains of Madness. And remember, you are an irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. Your keening static howl is like no other. And if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable. And the mansions of our silence would forever fill with our lament. Okay, bye. Bye. You keep tugging on my shirt. Just pull me closer. One single step at a time.